Welcome to the Citizens Youth Podcast. Citizens Youth is a ministry of Northwest Gospel Church in Vancouver, Washington. Citizens is a community of students who are learning to live for Jesus. We meet every Wednesday at 7 p.m. To find out more, visit us online at nwgospel.com forward slash citizens. It was a cave in the basement. The windows were this tall and you had to jump to look outside. And so we lived in the cave and so we wanted to move into a house. And so we're looking at houses in that neighborhood and um, we're just so different, Tali. It's like crazy. We're so different. So we walk in, the realtor's like looking around and Joe, she's looking at the house and she's like, what does it feel like? Right? Could I picture myself living in this dwelling place, right? She's like, Sam, look at the paint. And oh my gosh, it's so quaint. And she taught me this phrase that I thought was only for your English muffin. She's like, it has nooks and crannies, right? <laughs> like, what is that? You can just snuggle up in this little alcove and read a book. I'm like, I can't even fit in the alcove, right? But she's just enchanted by all these things. And I'm so much more about the facts, right? She's like, Sam, can't you picture our whole family here? I'm like, what year was this built? <laughs> And the realtor is like, um, well, you see, this is refurbished, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, no, 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 excuse me. Originally, what year was this built? 1912. I'm like, what? 1912? Like, that's literally in my history books. Well, you see, that's the enchantment of Camus. We have so much history. I go, no, 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 that's not history. That's history. That's, that's not, what did I say? That's not history. That's history. That's like, that's like my grandma wasn't even born yet, Right? And so my wife and I, we start to butt heads here because she's like, but, but it's history. And I'm like, this is ancient history, right? And so we're looking around and it's just like, I'm like skeeving out now because I'm like, dude, there like could be dead people in this house, right? Like this has been around forever. And so she's looking at the paint though. And look how cute the paint is, Alex. <gasps> look at the shrubs out front. Oh my gosh, do you see the little shrubs out front? This just has so much character. That's what she said. And so I'm sitting here going like, I can't live in a history book. I just like, I can't even handle this. And so I go, all right, all right, all right. We just got to get the facts. And so I said, realtor lady, I want you to give me the history on this house. I want you to tell me the real estate history. So she gives us a report and I'm looking through it. This house had been pending three different times in the past year. Do you guys know what that means? That means that someone came into the house and they said, oh my gosh, it's character, made an offer. Then they did their homework and they said, ooh, hard pass, three times. And so I look at this and I go, huh, three different people made a hard pass on the character of this house. I want to know why. And so my real estate agent knew a guy who was an inspector and he just so happened to be the one who did the inspection for this house. She pulled a few strings. We got the inspection report. Character, huh? Do you guys want to know what was on the inspection report? Do you guys want to know what was behind the fresh coat of paint? Rotting walls. Rotting walls. Do you want to know what was in those rotting walls? No, no, no. This is going to blow your mind. Like in your house, chances are, if you're an American living right now, there's like modern electricity in your walls. The, electric, the electrical wiring predated modern electricity. Like it was old wiring and the report said, if not taken care of, this can cause fire to the entire house. Imagine you turn on the light switch and it's like light, 
right? Inferno. How many of you guys can do an inferno with a light switch, right? You can in the canvas house. But then here was the kicker, right? Because all of those things could have been fixed, right? You could have like knocked down some walls and rebuilt them. Apparently you could spend thousands upon thousands of dollars. You're an electrician, Keem. You can rewire a house. But here was the kicker. Here was the thing that I could not handle. And I got angry that someone even posted this house for sale. It had no foundation. Literally, the house was sitting on wooden beams and the inspector's report was that the house is shifting and that at any time you can have the house collapse. Thank you. How many people want to move into the Camus house? Right? For character, are you kidding me? Friends, that day, as I'm reading the report and my wife is being brought to reason by my reason, we realized the house was exposed. Dude, the house looked good. How many of you guys like to paint? Anybody enjoy painting, right? And you can make a, you can make a wall look really good, right? The house looked really good, guys, but behind the painted walls, it was rot. The house got exposed. Those shrubs planted out front looked really, really nice, but they were probably covering up the fact that the house was crooked because it was collapsing. It was exposed. It was exposed. As we look at this house, here's the metaphor that I see, right? Because it's humorous, right? You're laughing, but the, the, the sad reality is that when we look at the Camus house, we kind of maybe see some parallels between the Camus house and our own lives. As high schoolers, as middle schoolers, we know what it's like to have a fresh coat of paint on. We know what it's like to have some fresh greenery. But if anybody knew what was really on the inside, we'd be exposed. If anybody really knew who we were behind the appearances, behind the mask, behind the character, <laughs> behind the charm, we would feel pretty exposed. And so for the next couple of moments, I want to share with you a story about a man who was exposed. I want to tell you a story about a man who was exposed and when it came out, it was ugly. It was ugly. And we find this story in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. How many of you have heard of David and Goliath? Okay, raise your hands high, let me see. David and Goliath, cool. This is not David and Goliath. The name of this story is David and Bathsheba. And this is happening years after Goliath. And unfortunately, we're gonna see King David exposed. You guys ready for the story? Here we go, starting in chapter 11, verse one. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbath. But David remained at Jerusalem. Okay, David stood home, taking a break from war. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now, 
She had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. I'm pregnant. David and Goliath, right? David, the mighty man of God. He, he just committed adultery. David, in a moment of passion, acted on it, ignored restraint, ignored God's rules, said, I want it, I'm taking it. And there were consequences. He got another man's wife pregnant. And she tells him, right? And so here's what happens. David says, okay, okay, okay. I'm, I know what I can do. And he does what all of us want to do. I know what I can do. I can cover it up. I can hide this. How are you gonna hide the fact that she's pregnant? He goes, I got a great idea. Her husband, where was her husband? Do you remember verse one? Where were all the men of Israel back in verse one? In the spring of that year, when the time when kings go out to battle, her husband is away at war where David should be. And so here's his plan. He says, you know what? I'm gonna go and grab Uriah. I'm gonna bring him back and I'm gonna give him a vacation. Uriah, what's up, buddy? Come on down. You've been working so hard out there in the battle. Tell you what, I want you to take a break. Forget the bloodshed. I want you to go home, spend some time with your wife, pop open a bottle of wine, have a nice relaxing night, and then go back to war next week. Take a vacation. Thinking that they can make it feel like Uriah got her pregnant. Good idea, right? Good plan. Let's see what happens. David said to Uriah, so this is the next day. Uriah comes back into the palace. He comes back to David and David is like, hey, did you have a good time? Did you go home? Did you have a good time relaxing? Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? So Uriah, he's like, yeah, thanks for the vacation. This is awesome. But he never went home. He didn't go home. He slept in the courtyard there and never even went to visit his wife. And so David says, why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? Here's David sinning and trying to cover up his sin. And in stark contrast, we see the righteousness of this soldier. It's like, hey, thanks for the vacation, but I, I can't go home and relax right now. I can't go watch a movie and, and pop open a bottle of wine. All my friends are on the battlefield. My Lord, the Ark of the Covenant is on the battlefield. I'm just gonna stay cool. I'm not going home. David's got a problem. How is he gonna cover it up? So he says, you know, let's, try, let's take two. Let's try it again. Let's try it again. And so this time he's going to invite Uriah over for dinner. He's going to get him drunk and then send him away thinking that if he's inebriated, then he'll really go home to relax. So let's see how that plan works. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Two times now, and David is still having a hard time covering it up. His wife is pregnant, and as soon as someone finds out, they're gonna know there's no explanation because Uriah wasn't home. And so what is David gonna do? 
There's no way to cover up the fact that he got this man's wife pregnant. What can he do? Surely now he's going to go, all right, this is foolishness. I can't cover it up anymore. All right, now I just got to. He does what you and I do. He goes, no, I'm going to hide. And so what he does is he says, all right, all right, all right. Vacation over, Uriah. I want you to go. I want you to go back to the battle. And hey, if you don't mind, can you give this letter to your commander for me? Sure thing, king, you got it. Going back to battle for my country, for the Lord. You know what was written in that letter? Dear Joab, the man who is holding this letter, I want you to put him on the front lines where he will surely die. And when the fighting gets hot, leave him there. Look what it says. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. This man who was so righteous that he wouldn't even go and lay at home with his wife. David says, you know what? There's only one way to silence this. I'm gonna kill him. I'm gonna kill him. And so this happens. This is King David. David, this happens. The commander sends word back to David and he basically says, hey messenger, I want you to go and tell David that we lost a lot of men, okay? Go and tell him, wink, wink. Just, I want you to say this, say, we lost a lot of men, wink, wink, right? Say that to him. And as he's going back, as he, he's future citizen, she's in third grade, future citizen. As, she's, as he's coming to David, the messenger, think about it. If you're a messenger and you're about to tell the king that we lost a lot of men in a battle unnecessarily. How do you think he's going to react? He's going to be ticked, right? King is going to be furious. He's going to be angry. He's going to be sad. He's going to be mourning over the fact that we've lost good men. And so the messenger goes, and look what he says to him. David said, or he said, the messenger says that stuff to David. Look what David says to him. Thus shall you say to Joab, don't let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. Encourage him. Not only is David an adulterer, he is a cold-blooded killer. He hears this news of these men that died unnecessarily and he goes, ah, it happens. It happens? You can just imagine the messenger who was anticipating a furious response going, that, that's a weird response. Why is he so okay with the fact that, that men, we lost good men? And you guys know why, don't you? Because he's trying to cover it up. He's trying to cover it up. And so, as if adultery and as if cold-blooded killing isn't enough, look how he ends this painful story. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It's the final straw. He finally takes what is not his. And the sad story ends of having a dead man and his wife impregnated by the king now living in the king's house. 
our first response to King David's story is like, OMG, right? Like I see you guys' faces around. Some of you guys are literally like, right? Like, is that not messed up? Be honest here, right? We're like, well, it's in the Bible, so it's probably a point to it. No, it's in the Bible to show us it is messed up. And that is a good response. But I also know what it feels like to look at that story and to go, ah, oh, you know what? I, that is kind of messed up, but I can't really judge him. Man, that is super messed up, but I'm gonna kind of like not really chime in here because I know that I have a little bit of King David in me, right? I, I know what it's like to say yes to my passions and desires. I know what it's like to ignore God's law and I know what it's like to try to hide and cover it up. And so, yeah, that's messed up, but I, I kind of see myself in there a little bit. That's us. And so do you know what God does? Here's a point today. Do you know what God does when he finds people like David, when he finds people like you, when he finds people like me in the midst of these messes that we've made for ourselves? You know what God does? He does the most gracious thing he could ever do for a person. He exposes them. He exposes David straight up. Look what he does here. He sends a prophet named Nathan in the next verse. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, so, uh, so Nathan comes in, right? You can imagine David sitting there. What is David doing? I don't know. What do kings do? Play chess or something, right? But he's like, the, he doesn't even have a king on the board because he's the piece. I don't know. But he's playing chess or something. And uh, Nathan comes like, Nathan, my trusty prophet, come on in, my advisor. And Nathan comes in. He's a little bit somber. I was like, David, I got to talk to you. David's like, why do you, what's wrong? What's the big deal? He doesn't know that anybody knows. Nobody knows right now. He hid it. He covered it up. His sin is hidden. So he's feeling good. And so Nathan comes and he's like, I got to talk to you. I got, I got like, there has been a, some serious, serious majuju gumbo going on in the kingdom. I got to tell you about it. And he goes, tell me about it. And he tells him this story. There were two men in a certain city. The one was rich and the other was poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. And everybody goes, oh, little lamb chop, right? The poor man had one little lamb and you just, you picture it, it was like, he would feed it from his hand and, and he would let the lamb drink from his cup. Um, sorry, I threw up in my mouth. But this lamb was everything to him, right? And the rich man had tons of sheep and look what happens. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. The rich man was like, oh, I got company. I don't want to kill any of my lambs. Take that little guy's lamb. Take lamb chop from over there. And he killed him. King David flips over the chest and are you kidding me? Who in the right mind would steal the poor man's lamb? You bring it here right now. Are you kidding? I'm going to teach him a lesson. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity, right? Nathan set him up. 
Nathan looks at the king straight up in his eyes. He looks at the king in a way that nobody else in the kingdom would dare talk to the king. And he goes, that guy deserves to die, huh? He's like, yes, bring him here right now. Nathan looks at him and he says, you're the man. You're the man. You had everything in the kingdom at your disposal. You're the richest man in the kingdom. And you took that one man's little lamb, his wife, and she's standing in the room next door. You're the man. The most gracious thing that God can do for a person like this is to expose them. And now you look at chapter 12 and you go, that's not gracious. Oh my gosh, why would God do that? God is embarrassing. God is calling him out. That's not gracious. That's mean. God is punishing him. No, 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 students, understand. The most gracious thing that God could do for David was to expose him and bring his sin into the light. Because if his sin kept secret, if his sin was staying hidden, it would devour him from the inside out. And so God takes people like this who are caught in this egregious sin and he brings it into the light. And I'm telling you, it's gracious. But at the same time, it does hurt, doesn't it? Do you ever turn on the light in a room after it's been dark for a long time? What happens? What do you do? Show me, what do you do? Somebody turns on the light after you've been sitting in the dark. What do you do? Ah, yeah, ah, right? Our eyes are hurt by the light sometimes when we've been so used to the darkness. And so that's happening here. He's bringing David into the light. He brings you into the light. And at first it may hurt your eyes. At first you may be embarrassed. At first you may be mortified. At first you may feel like I deserve to die. But I'm telling you tonight, that is the most gracious thing that God can do for you when you're in sin. It's to expose you. And for the next three weeks before we go to camp, this is my prayer that God in his mercy and grace would bring you into the light. It's my prayer that over the next three weeks that the Lord would expose you to yourself. It's my prayer that this community would experience what's it's, what it's like to be brought into the light. And some of you here have never been in the light. Some of you here have never experienced what it's like for your junk to get out into the open and to experience the freedom and the liberty that comes with that. And so it's my prayer as we go through this new sermon series that we as a community would experience what it's like to be brought into the light, that we would experience what it's like to be made clean. To be made clean. And so here's our question that we need to answer tonight. When you have a King David type of situation, when you have a Nathan the prophet kind of situation, what do you do when you're exposed? What do you do when you're exposed? When you, like David, are brought face to face with the reality of your own depravity, what do you do when you're exposed? When other people around you finally get the inspection report and they see past the paint and they see past the shrubs and they see you for who you really are and your sin is exposed to them, what do you do when you're exposed? What do you do when you're exposed? What do you do when you're exposed? David got to the end of that chapter. Nathan blew up his spot, read his mail, exposed him. And you know what David did? 
You know, David, and I'm so glad he did this because then we can now answer the question. David went ahead and wrote one of the most beautiful pieces of poetry that exists in our Bible. He wrote Psalm 51. And I call this Psalm clean. And for the next three weeks, we're gonna move through this Psalm chunk by chunk in three chunks. And we're going to look at what David did in response to being exposed. We're gonna break down this piece of poetry we're not gonna read it just to study poetry. We're gonna read it to answer the question for ourselves. What do I do when I'm exposed? Lord, what should I do when you call me out and bring me into the light and expose my sin? And so today, we're just gonna do the first six verses here as we wrap up our message here. Are you guys ready for clean? You excited for the summer series? What do you do when you're exposed? We find out starting in verse one. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. In these first six verses, we see two things that I want you to see today, okay? We see the confession and we see the cry. We see David's confession and then we hear David's cry. And so let's look at this. We're going to start in verse three and work our way through this, okay? He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, right? This is him just going, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. This is the confession, okay? This is the confession. This is where David, after being exposed, the first thing he does is a confession. And when you look at this confession, here's what I want you to notice. Everything in this confession is counterintuitive. Everything that he does in this confession is the opposite of what you usually do when you're exposed, okay? So let's look at it. The first thing he does, he acknowledges it. He acknowledges his sin. When your sin is exposed, perhaps you're like me, this is what you usually do, right? You get defensive, you go, what, what sin? What's, that's not a big deal. What, what are you talking about? And when our sin is exposed, what we like to do is just go, I, I'm just not going to talk about it. I, I just don't want to think about it, right? If it's out of sight and out of mind, I don't have to look at what's going on. I just, right? I, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. We don't acknowledge it. But what does David do? David turns, right? He's not doing this. He turns and he looks at his sin straight in the face. Look what he says. He goes, I know. I know, I, I see it clearly. He says, it is ever before me. He looks at his sin straight in the eye and he goes, yep, I know what I did. Yep, 
It's clear to me. Yep, I'm I'm not gonna try to ignore it or escape the reality. I'm gonna own it. As a matter of fact, this is my sin. It's not generic sin. This This is my sin. And so you could almost picture David here, right? You could picture him making this hand motion here that I wanna give you with this first step. You picture him just taking his hands and going, yeah, this is mine. Everybody do this right now. Take your hand and just go look at it right in front of you, right? The mess that's in front of you. Yeah, I know my sin. It is ever before me. I acknowledge my sin. Students, this move right here, this is the first thing you do. When God exposes sin in your life, the first part of our confession is to acknowledge it. Yep, I see it. I've done it. It's clear. So he acknowledges it. Look what he does next. Second thing, he admits that God is right. He says, Lord, I admit, I'm I'm looking at my sin here and I admit this is wrong because it is wrong in your sight. He says, Lord, I know that it's wrong because you say it's wrong. He looks at his actions. Guys, check this out. He looks at his actions and he says, God, your assessment of my actions How did he learn God's assessment? Who told him God's judgment and opinion about those actions? Who told him? Nathan. So God, your assessment, your judgment, which I heard from Nathan, I I admit it is accurate. It is right. Your your assessment, you, you are justified. It is blameless. You're right. You're right. Friends, here's the reality, okay? Being, especially middle school and high school, I guess any adult in today's age, everybody is going to have an opinion on what's in front of you here. Everybody's gonna look at your sin. Everybody's gonna have a hot take on what you've done. And they're gonna say, well, in my sight, that's normal. Look at yours. In my sight, that's not sin. In my sight, that's actually pretty cool. In my sight, you deserve to be celebrated for what you've done. In my sight, this is part of growing up. In my sight, this is normal. Students, as you look at the actions that you've done in front of you, whose sight matters to you? When you do this, you acknowledge, okay, I acknowledge I've done this. Whose sight, whose opinion, whose perspective is right about what you've done? Is it yours? I get to determine if this is right or wrong. Is it your friends? Is it culture? Step two, he admits God is right. And so he goes from doing this, everybody do this, right? He acknowledges it. And then he goes, I admit it. Hands up. I admit you're wrong, right? You can picture him, right? You picture him with his hands up and just imagine what his eyebrows are doing, right? His eyebrow, and guys, you've heard me talk about the eyebrows. Your entire soul is in your eyebrows. It's true. It's true. You come and talk to me, and if you're being defensive, where are your eyebrows? No. No, it don't. Or you go, right? I see it right now. I have a three-year-old, and his soul is written right here across his forehead. Not on his forehead, below it. Right here, the eyebrows. But but daddy, but daddy, 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 shh, the eyebrows. Shh, the eyebrows, right? And sometimes I just want to be able to just take my fingers on his eye and just go, just lower the eyebrows. Humble your eyebrows. Go from a, no, no, you don't understand to, you're right. You're right. And so you picture David here. He acknowledges his sin and then he admits, God, you are right. 
You are so right. I believe that your opinion, that your law, that your perspective is the only one that matters. So much so that look what he says. He goes, against you, you only have I sinned. Who did David sin against? Let's list all the people, right? How much time do you have? How many people did he sin against? Uriah, he killed him. Uriah's wife, he brought her, he, he disgraced her purity. The people of Israel, he, he had a moral failure and disqualified himself from being king. Joab, causing Joab to kill a man by retreat. I mean, he sinned against so many people. Why does he say against you only have I sinned? David, that's not true. You sinned against a lot of people. Yes, I've sinned against Bathsheba. Yes, I sinned against Uriah. Yes, I have sinned against all of Israel, but only because at the end of the day, I have violated what is wrong in God's sight. Against you, God. This is ultimately, it's wrong because you're my creator. Because you have the authority to tell me what's right and wrong. And so David goes from acknowledging his sin to, to admitting This is the confession, right? This is the blueprint of a confession. He got exposed and so he confesses, acknowledges his sin, admits his, he admits that God is right. And then look at the final one here. He accepts the depths of his sin. When you and I sin, right? We go, no, no, that was just a one time. No, that's not really who I am. I just had a one, you know? No, no, you just don't understand. I'm actually a really good person. I just had a a lapse of judgment. And he doesn't play any of these games. Look what he says. He says, I was brought forth in iniquity. He says, God, I'm acknowledging my sin. I admit that you're right. And then finally, I'm recognizing the depth that this problem goes. This is more than a single action. This is a problem that goes back to the very moment that I was born. He says, God, here's the problem. My heart has been crooked since birth, since the moment, before birth, since the moment my mother conceived me. Students, do you realize that your hearts are born crooked? If you're new here at Citizens, maybe you're even new to Christianity, I know what you think about us, okay? You think that we are the people that are all about the rules. Oh, you're a Christian. That means you can't do anything. Hey, Matthew, welcome to Citizens, right? Hi, Sam. I know you. You're the rule guy. No, that's not who we are. Christianity is not about behave, be moral, be good. It's like I call those the killer bees because they can just kill you with all these bee things. It's not about be, just be, 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 be. The message of Christianity, friends, is that it's not a matter of what we do. It's a matter of who we are. Sin has invaded our hearts and we believe that every single human being is born crooked. And so what do you do when you're exposed? He acknowledges it. He admits that God's right and that he, he, he accepts the depths of that sin. And he goes, God, this is not just my, a behavior problem. This is a heart problem. This is more than a random act of badness. This was an action that has come from a heart that was born crooked, a heart that wants to be in charge. And so he says, God, this is a deep issue. It's a deep issue. This is the confession. That's the confession. What do you do when you're exposed? You confess. 
And here's the beautiful thing about doing this kind of message in a group like this. Here's the beautiful thing about the citizens community is that we get to do this together, okay? Listen, do you know how hard it is to confess? Do you know how hard it is to acknowledge, admit, and, and accept the depth of your sin when you're in a community that is always wanting you to like, be the best version of you? Like, when they put that pressure on you, be like, hey, make sure you look perfect. That's not this community. We're a community that will meet you at the door. Matthew, this is your first time, right? So we meet Matthew at the door. We go, hey, what's your name? I'm Matthew. Whoa, you look like a kid that I coach on my Skyridge track team. Wait, that is me. Hey, okay, I want you to know something. My name is Sam and I messed up. Hi, Sam. And then Keaton comes and he goes, hey, I'm Keaton. I messed up. Say it, just try it. Say it, it feels good to get it out there. Hi, I'm Tiffany. I messed up. Not I messed up, I'm messed up, Right? Right? And so because we're a community that just acknowledges right off the jump, hey, we're citizens. We're messed up. No, no, no. See, you made me do it now. Now you're making me seem like the bad guy. Hi, we're citizens. We're messed up. Isn't that awesome? We actually sing songs. It's like one of my favorite songs. We sing it at camp and it's like, you adopted us in because we were trash and broken and orphaned. And like, it's literally for like 15 minutes, we're singing a song. I'm not kidding, right, Matt? Like we sing a song acknowledging how bad we are right off the jump. And so I'll tell you what, when your sin is exposed, when your sin is exposed, don't worry about what people are gonna think about you because they already know you're messed up. So are we. And so it's in this type of community, friends, that when we confess sin to one another, we're not repulsed. We don't go, oh, we go, me too. When we confess sin to one another, we're not shocked. We're not gonna treat you differently. We're gonna go, of course you are. We all are. It's the confession. And we do this in community. And as we go to camp in a few weeks, again, my prayer is that some of you guys will be brought into the light for the first time, that you will be exposed. And here's what I want you to do. In that moment, when your sin comes to light, the first part here is just to confess. Confess. I don't know how to confess. Do the hand motions. It's a dance, right? I acknowledged. Yep, this is mine. I admit, God, you're right. That is wrong. And then I accept the depth. This is a heart problem. God, fix more than the action in front of me. Fix my heart. And then here's where we end. After the confession, we see the last part here is the cry. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So after the confession, we hear the cry. We hear the cry. David is not going, Psh, yeah, that's my sin, whatever. There's a brokenness, isn't there? What do you imagine his eyebrows are doing as he's saying this, right? He is broken. There's remorse. His heart is soft. And so he cries out. He says, God, there is no chance of me fixing this on my own. There is no chance that I can remove this stain from my soul. And so God, please blot out my transgressions. God, please wash me. God, please cleanse me. God, please make me clean. What is he doing here? What is he doing? 
He's doing the only thing that any of us can do. He is throwing himself on the mercy of God. Have mercy on me, O God. Do you know what we try to do when we get, when we, when we get exposed and we confess? We, so this is what we do. And I know it because I was you and I still am you. We, we, we do the boom, boom, boom. We're doing the dance. We confess and we say, okay, God, now that I confess, now I'm going to make it up to you. God, I'm going to read my Bible every day this week. God, I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you. I'm going to make it up to you, right? We try to make it up to God. We try to justify ourselves. But what had happened was, God, yes, I know I did it. But God, you just don't understand. She was just driving me nuts. We try to justify. We try to downplay it. No, I confess, but come on. In the grand scheme of things, everybody really struggles with this. He doesn't do any of those things. He confesses and then immediately he cries out and throws himself on the mercy of God. He says, God, I know how messed up I am right now and I'm putting myself completely in your hands. Whatever you will do with me, God, I trust you. I'm not gonna try to hide. I'm not gonna justify God. I'm in your hands. Students, do you know what God does when we put our sin and ourselves in his hands? Do you know how he treats us when we throw ourselves completely on his mercy and we confess and we cry out? Do you know what he does with us when we're right here? Do you know how he treats us? We have no other option but to throw ourselves on him. He treats us according to his steadfast love. He treats us according to his great mercy. He treats us according to his character. And this is his character. He's a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. He's a God that when we put ourselves in his hands, he doesn't give us what we deserve. God never gives us our just desserts. Well, how do you know, Sam? How do you know that God was gonna treat me with mercy? You don't understand what I did. I'm the only one in the room that struggles with this and he's already given me mercy and I messed up again and so there's no more mercy for me. How do you know that if I confess and cry out that he, and I put myself in his hands, if I throw myself on his mercy, how do you know he's gonna treat me with that? How do you know it'll be according to steadfast love and that it won't be punishment and shame? How do you know? I know because I've read the end of the story. I know because I've seen at the end of the book, like a good math book, all the answers are in the back of the book. I've seen what God does to people who confess and cry out to him. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, and he died on the cross, taking the penalty for our sin. Jesus took the shame and the condemnation and the punishment so that all of us who call out to him, who cry out, for all of us who confess can be made clean. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he will punish us and shame us and reprimand us and tell, no, 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 no. If we call out, if we cry out, if we confess, if we put ourselves in his hands, what will he do? He is faithful. You know what that word faithful means? It reminds me of divorce. Even when we sin against our groom, he won't divorce us. He's faithful to us. He won't leave us. What else will he do? Well, he's just. He's just, he's gonna do what he says. He is righteous. He's going to deal with the penalty but he won't put it on you. He'll take it on himself. 
the register will be made even at the end of the night. He will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Band, you can come. Students, what do we do? What do you do when your sin is exposed? What do you do when the Lord, by his grace, exposes your sin? We confess and we cry out. And so what I want you to do today for the next 15 minutes, we're gonna end on that last part. I just want us to cry out. And as the band plays, do business with God. Ask him, perhaps you're even blinded to your own sin. Ask him to expose you to the realities of your sin. And maybe you already know, you're like, Sam, I don't need him to show me because I know, right? If you already know, then what do you do? What do you do? And I'm telling you tonight, students, confess, admit it, acknowledge it, admit it, accept it. And then cry out and say, Lord, make me clean. And I promise you, students, I promise you that when you cry out to Jesus to make you clean, he will cleanse you from your unrighteousness. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of the gospel. I thank you, Lord, that, that when, not if, but when we come face to face with our sin, that you've given us truth to show us what to do with that. So Lord, as these students deal with being exposed to their sin, as they, as they maybe even feel the sting of, of their sin being brought to light in front of others, may they throw themselves, Lord, upon your mercy because there's nothing else we can do. May they throw themselves upon your mercy and experience the cleansing power of your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.